Welcome back to the Classic Rock Podcast. And this month, we're going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of 1973, a year in which there were many firsts. Kiss played their first ever gig on uh, January the 30th at the Country Club and Queens in New York. The Scorpions, they had a first gig with Lily John Rock. Tubular Bells was the first release on this bloke called uh, Richard Branson. He just had a new record label. It was called Virgin. Uh, Gillen, well, he walked out on Deep Purple. The Who released Quadrophenia. Pink Floyd, of course, released Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, then there were a couple of kids called Malcolm and Angus. Young, that is. They performed as ACDC at Checkers Nightclub in Sydney for the very first time as ACDC. Also formed this year, Kansas and Journey. So you see, it's quite a year, and that is just a snapshot of what happened. So what are we going to be concentrating on? Well, coming up, as well as some of this fabulous music, I'm talking to Randy Bachman about the evolution of one of the year's biggest hits, and certainly one of their most enduring classics. Bachman Turner Overdrive's Taking Care of Business. And that was some evolution because he started writing it in the late 1960s before it finally came to fruition. And it wouldn't have come to fruition, of course, without the pizza man. And if you don't know the story about the pizza man and what he had to play in the role of this song, then you have to listen. Uh, Also, Mark Farner. Now, he wanted a cowbell for a Grand Funk Railroad track, but he didn't want just any cowbell. He wanted big bells. And lots of them. The end product? Well, again, another one of the year's defining tracks. We're an American band, of course. So that is all coming up. But now, just a reminder, if you've not checked out the shows for a while, we've had some great guests along in the last couple of months. If you're a Boston fan, then we heard from Tommy DiCarlo last time out. He had an amazing story to tell about his evolution from literally a karaoke singer to fronting one of the biggest bands ever. Uh, Joel Hookstra was in to talk about Revolution Saints. They've got a great new album out during the course of this year. Plus, we had Glenn Hughes and Doug Aldridge. Uh, That was on the Dead Daisies' recent tour of the UK and Europe. We caught up with them. Plus, Cormac Neeson of The Answer. Now, they have got a great new album out. They're back for the first time in seven years. They've released three tracks already. Every one of them has been excellent. Uh, You can hear the recent release on the website at the moment. Uh, Could be the answer's best ever release called The Sundowner. And uh, that is due in April. We'll be hearing more from them in April. And blues. What about Kenny Wayne Shepherd? He came in to talk about Trouble Is, which was celebrating a 25th anniversary. And we look back on his career as well. All of those shows are available now. And just looking ahead into February, we're going to be talking to Ronnie Romero about a covers album that he's just released. Uh, There's some fantastic versions of Deep Purple's The Battle Rages On. That's one of the best tracks on it. And also The Light in Black. He really does do the rainbow stuff extremely well. Uh, I think Light in Black is actually the best song on the album. We'll hear some tracks from that and hear from Ronnie Romero next time out, along with... Robin McCauley. 
Uh, he has a new album coming out this month. We'll be talking about that and looking back on a highly decorated career. And those of you that have got long memories or that were listening to rock music in the 70s and 80s, I, I remember, and I've still got it because I had a look, a picture disc. Remember then, it was a 45 of a song called uh, Keep On Believing, that was it, by Grand Prix which Robin McCauley was fronting way, way, way back. This was long before he, of course, went into the Far Corporation and uh, linked up with Michael Schenker in the McCauley-Schenker group. And they toured with Whitesnake on the, the Snake Rattle and Roll tour. Whitesnake touring the 1987 album. And I remember seeing them New Year's Eve, 87-88, McCauley-Schenker group. That is uh, all coming up, but now we have to uh, just concentrate on the sounds of 1973 and where do you start? So we always try to be a little bit different. So we're not going to open with Dark Side of the Moon, anything off that or anything by Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple or Black Sabbath. No, we have to be a little bit left of centre here, a little bit left field. So imagine you are back in 1973 and you hear this for the very first time. Initially, the album wasn't a great seller, but it did go on to rack up over a million sales in the US at least. And it is a timeless classic. They went on to produce four albums in four years. And then there was a hiatus and they came back with one album in 1987. Uh, They were called Montrose. And they had Ronnie Montrose, who played as a session player with uh, Herbie Hancock, amongst others. And then he'd found this guy singing in a covers band in San Francisco. Imagine you're walking through the door of a bar and you, you hear this guy's pipes for the first time. He was, of course, Sammy Hagar, who went on to be one of the most celebrated and successful male rock vocalist ever and is still doing the business now but back then you put the needle down and you hear this space station number five
How good was that? What an album, what a sound, what a guitar, what vocals they were. And uh, it's all right now, you can put your air guitar down. How many of you were up head banging along to that with your air guitar flying around the room? Uh, Rock the Nation, Rock Candy, another couple of tracks we could have picked. Apparently, the record company didn't know where to put them, you know, what bracket to put them in. Were they hard rock? Many people have said that this is the first ever American heavy metal album. Doesn't really matter, does it? What matters is the fact that it's still, if you listen to it today, an amazing album. And how do you love that Sammy scream at the beginning of that track? Space Station number five from Montrose. You can get the deluxe expanded edition that was released a few years ago. And uh, as I said, the sound is still essential listening. Right, songs with cowbells. An essential ingredient for classic rock in the 70s. So what were the best songs that had a cowbell in? Now, there was a top 10 list produced that I came across. Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo, Rick Derringer. Uh, Born on the Bayou, of course, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Stone Free Jimi Hendrix Experience. Uh, Hair of the Dog by Nazareth from 1975. That was a great track. Uh, What about where the arguments begin about which was the best one? Well, at number three, Blue Oyster Cult, Don't Fear the Reaper. At number two, Grand Funk Railroad from 1973, which is where we are stopping off. We're an American band. But number one, the number one song with a cowbell in it, Honky Tonk Woman from 1969 by the Rolling Stones. Uh, you'll have your favourites, of course, but for our purposes, though, it is Grand Funk Railroads. We are an American band, which is of most interest. Remember, this band were on route to becoming just about the biggest thing on planet rock, weren't they? They'd sold out the Shea Stadium quicker than the Beatles everywhere you went. It was Grand Funk Railroad. They had those massive billboard ads on Times Square as well. Uh, the times were changing, though, for Marks Farner and the band. At the time of recording, uh, they couldn't really settle on the right producer. It was proving to be a little bit problematic. So uh, I was talking to Mark Farner about this, and this is what he had to say when we got to talking about the track. We're an American band, but uh, I think we should just hear the song first, don't you?
So you fired Terry Knight eventually, and you brought in Todd Rundgren, who was this real hot shot young producer at the time, worked with Badfinger and the New York Dolls as well as his own band. So were you actually looking for a new direction to take the band in and a new sound? As a matter of fact, yes, because the sound that we were getting on early albums was not quite up to our expectations, Tim. And we looked forward to uh, working with Todd Rundgren because of just his reputation, of course, and listening to the music that he produced and thinking, wow, uh, we are really going to have a guitar that sounds like my guitar does on stage. The drums will be big and the bass will be massive. Well, the bass was always massive, but it just, it was kind of taking over everything uh, in the Terry Knight mixes. But uh, with Todd Rundgren, we respected him and uh, we we were anticipating uh, working with him. But the, the way he got picked, the way we picked him was we had names in a hat and we reached in there and, and picked out that name, and there he was. And, and Lynn Goldsmith, who was our publicist at the time, had a relationship with Todd Rundgren, and she was so excited that I picked that name from the hat. And uh, with her help, uh, because she uh, she was the mastermind behind all the album covers, and, and she did a lot of... In fact, she was the one who... Uh, told the band, why don't you guys do a song that is about you? That uh, You're an American band. So then Brewer comes to rehearsal the following day with the lyrics to American band. And, and I had the guitar parts in my head as he was singing it. I said, well, what about this? You know, and then I played da -da 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 -da, and, and he was going, oh, yeah, man, look, we do that. But at the end of the session, when we did record American Band, um, Brewer came to me and said, Mark, I've never had 100% right credit. Can I take this 100% right credit on this song? And I said, go ahead, Don, because I'm a nice guy, Tim. And, uh, <laughs> and I was just doing it out of my heart. And that didn't change me from being a nice guy. It just made me aware of... Uh, people would take advantage of that. Uh, whose idea was it to bring in and use uh, perhaps the, the most famous cowbell in rock music? Well, that is my idea because I said to Brewer, man, we need a cowbell on this song. And he says, well, I don't have one. I said, dude, we got to have a cowbell on this song. I said, just think of the, the songs that do have cowbells and that are very big. I said, this could be it. He says, okay, I'll stop and pick one up tomorrow on the way to rehearsal. I said, no, man, pick up six cowbells, and we will get the one that matches in tone to the key of this song, which uh, which is in D, the key of D, A440. And uh, so he picked up six cowbells on the way to rehearsal, and we matched the one with a little duct tape on it and made it sound like, you know, a huge cowbell. I don't like a cowbell that just goes tink, tink, tink. This one, man, <laughs> it was going kank, kank, kank. Yeah, it was It was spitting it out. The, the lyrics as well were great, all about what was going on on the road. 
including the the infamous line about the uh, four Chiquitas in Omaha. Oh, yes, and that was a true line. But tearing down the hotel wasn't. And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of fantasy in there. But Freddie King being out with Freddie King and playing poker, after every show when Freddie King was opening for us, after every show we were playing poker with Freddie King. And one night, Freddie, he was kind of losing some hands. And usually he was winning all the time. You know, we're thinking, how is this guy winning so much? And then finally, he slams a Saturday night special down on the table. And he says, well, things better change. And we said, are you kidding me, man? There's a there's a 38 special laying on the, <laughs> on the table. Things are really going to change. It was a lot of fun. The legendary sound of uh, Grand Funk Railroad and the voice of Mark Farner. Uh, we did an in-depth interview with Mark for a previous show. The whole of that interview you can find via the website. Very, very entertaining and insightful it is. Now, bringing the sound of 1973 across the pond. Recorded at Decker Studios in West Hampstead in London and George Martin Studios as well, was album number three from Thin Lizzy. It was called Vagabonds of the Western World, which had not only great music on it, but it had Jim Fitzpatrick's art house cover, great cover. It still looks amazing today. And from it, what was said at the time in the reviews, if you look back, Thin Lizzy's first bona fide classic. Coming from an album, they said, brimming with attitude and dangerous swagger. And the track is The Rocker.
Vagabonds of the Western World. Last album with Eric Bell on lead guitar. Gary Moore appeared on a couple of tracks there as well. And again, there's a, a deluxe edition of this, if you can find it, which has got a great second CD, which has 60 minutes of live tracks recorded for various concerts and BBC specials with the likes of John Peel and Bob Harris. Amazingly, it didn't actually chart that album, neither did Nightlife, uh, barring a number 60 in the UK album charts. It will be three more years before they hit in a really big way, of course, when Jailbreak was released. Hopefully, 
Scott Gorham will be out on the road performing Sin Lizzy classics in the upcoming year. He, of course, has stepped down from the Black Star Riders, and I think Ricky Warwick is going to be joining him. So if you saw any of the uh, Lizzie shows before with uh, Ricky Warwick and Scott Gorham, it was a great night. Now, the beauty of this genre of music, rock and blues and all of the subgenres, is that you always have the potential to come across something that you might not have heard before. And there I was the other day, and I was listening on one of these streaming platforms. You know, they put together these um, mix of tracks that they send you based on what you listen to. And I ended up with this uh, album rocking in called Moon Tan from Golden Earring. It was their ninth album release in 1973. And it was the one which contains Radar Love. And I think like a lot of people outside of Radar Love, they haven't really listened to a lot of the band's output. But I listened to the entire album once, twice, and then three times. It is such a great album. And so I'm now moving through the entire uh, catalogue and stopping off here and there on uh, car trips and car journeys and, you know, when you're pottering around the house and writing stuff. Uh, And you realise what a great band they were. Now, for those of you that were album-buying age back in 1973, you'll be saying, yeah, yeah, of course, we know Moontown. It was the biggest album that they had. It was a big hit in the States, etc., etc., uh, but for the for the rest of us that weren't, because pocket money never stretched to that, here's a track from the album, and I think you'll like it. It's from the remastered edition, which came out a few years back, and it's called Instant Poetry.
It was the ninth album for uh, Golden Earring. And when Radar Love hit in the US, and it was a huge hit, and they were out on tour, guess who they had uh, supporting them on various dates? Aerosmith and Kiss. Incredible, eh? Imagine seeing that Golden Earring with Aerosmith or Kiss. Aerosmith, of course, released their debut album as well in 1973. Now, it was announced just... A few weeks ago, that Robbie Bachman, the drummer and younger brother of Randy, had sadly passed away. He joined Randy in Brave Belt in 1970. He was just 18 years of age and was there right the way through those peak years of Bachman, Turner Overdrive. Five top 40 albums, six top 40 singles in the US alone. But it's 1973, which is the year of interest for us. Uh, Bankman to Overdrive 2 came out. The album itself went to number four in the US album charts. They had Let It Ride, of course, as a single. But the track that is of most interest to us, the track that had almost a career of its own and still does, Taking Care of Business. Now, there's some story to this song, and it began many years before BTO even existed. Uh, I spoke to Randy about the track and the song and how it actually came to be. Now, this song was Sony Music's most licensed track ever and off the cuff i found 16 cover versions of it it was used in two documentaries eight movies 11 tv series it was also used to record the largest guitar jam in history back in 1994 with 1322 players playing it and it's been used in so many ad campaigns you couldn't actually list them because we don't have time And Hillary Clinton used it during her election campaign. I refer, of course, to taking care of business. Now, is that your most satisfying creation? It is, because I co-wrote it with myself. I don't mind sharing the money with myself as a (laughs) co-writer. It started in the late 70s. I'm sorry, in the late 60s uh, in New York City. The Beatles had a paperback writer. And I'm trying to write a song like Paperback Writer. And Paperback Writer is a copy of Johnny Be Good, the day in the life of a guy. Rather than saying, love, love me, do, or these eyes cry every night, I want to write about a guy like the Beatles wrote about their guy who wrote novels, and Chuck Berry wrote about the kid who lived in a cabin made of earth and wood named Johnny Be Good. So, and, and I'm recording at Scepter Studios. Florence Greenberg was a wonderful, smart Jewish lady who owned Scepter Records. She co-managed Dionne Warwick. She managed the Shirelles. She wrote Soldier Boy for the Shirelles. She owned Scepter Records. She's the one who got Backrack and David there and, Bert and uh, Dionne Warwick together and, and invited Ashford and Simpson to come in every Friday and play hooky from school and pitch songs. And her son, Stanley Greenberg, was the engineer at Scepter Records. So he engineered our records and a lot of Dionne Warwick's records are demos for Backrack and David. And Stanley Greenberg was blind. And it amazed me how this blind guy, who basically they have great ears, right, uh, could mix the sound. And Stanley came to work every day wearing a white collar, a button-down collar, a tweed tie, a tweed jacket with leather patches on the elbows, tweed pants, you know, we're talking wool tweed here, and brogue shoes. 
And this Stylish is August, man. August in, in New York, and it's like 95 <laughs> above, 95 humidity. We're all wearing ripped T-shirts and je cut-off jeans and flip-flops. Stanley comes every day wearing tweed from head to toe. I say, Stanley, why are you, why are you dressed this way? He said, I want to look like George Martin. He's the greatest producer in the world. I go, yes, Stanley, you look, look like George. Take off the damn jacket. You're making me hot. Look at you. So Stanley, I said, I want to write a song about you, Stanley. You come to work every day wearing this white collar, and I'm going to copy paperback writer. I'm going to call the song White Collar Worker. And he goes, wow, a song about me. And I go, yeah. Why do you leave the studio every day at 10 o'clock? He said, well, I, I, I take the train. I said, don't you live downtown here? Studios on West 54th, right downtown New York City. And uh, he said, no, I take the train home. I said, well, can I come with you? Uh, do you take a taxi? He said, no, I walk. I go, you walk? The where? He's in Grand Central Station. So how do you walk there? He said, I count steps. So I'm amazed that I've never had the experience before with a, with a visually impaired person, with a blind guy. Like, can I come with you? I need some ideas to write the song. He says, sure. So at 10 o'clock, he walks out the door. He's got a white cane and he's counting. I go, what are you doing? He said, I count 856 steps this way. Then I hear a little tweeting, and I know I'm at an intersection, because inter you know, when you're blind, you hear this little tweet, you know you can walk, you know it's a green light. And I walk across the street, then I walk 300 feet that way, 300 steps, and then at 100 that way, and I'm at Grand Central. So I'm with them, and we end up at Grand Central Station. Except it's quarter after 10 at night. The streets are empty. Everybody's in the theaters, or they're in Madison Square Garden. In a half an hour, it's going to be pandemonium in the streets. Everyone's out of the theaters. They're trying to get coffee and dessert or they're out of Madison Square Garden. So we get, to, we get to Grand Central, it's totally empty. He's getting on the train, and I say, well, goodbye, Stanley, if there's nothing to write about. I'm gonna sing White Collar Worker, and then there's this empty street, there's nothing here. When do you come in? When do you come in in the morning? He said, I take the 815 to the city. And I go, wow, well, I'll meet you at, when did the 815 get here? He said, about quarter to nine. So I go there about quarter to nine, I meet the 815, and that's the first lines. Uh, when, he, when he arrives there, I'm waiting for him, and all the, there's, the train is full of women. And they're all doing their makeup and their hair and lipstick and they're getting off the train. So they get up in the morning from the alarm clocks morning and take the 815 into the city. There's a whistle up above. When you arrive, a whistle goes off. You know the 815s arrive. And the girls are trying to look pretty. If your train's on time, you can get to work by 9. So I'm saying to Stanley, so you walk to Scepter Records? He says, yeah, I get there by 9. I start my slaving <laughs> job to get my pay. And I go, holy cow, he's written the song. So I do that whole verse. The verses are the same, but except when it gets to my hook. I stupidly go, why call their worker, just like paperback writer. And everybody I play the songs for says, great, great lyrics in your verses. They're your Chuck Berry, they're your Beatle lyrics. You gotta change the hook because you're gonna get sued by Lennon McCartney. It's a dead, a dead copy of the paperback writer's thing. And so that never makes it on the next Guess Who album with Burton Cummings with Wheatfield Soul that has these eyes. It never makes it on the next album, which has Laughing and Undone. It never makes it on the next album, which is American Woman in No Time. I leave the band. I pitch it for one. The band doesn't want to do it because of the white collar worker part. I pitch it for Brave Bell 2. Fred Turner doesn't want to do it because of the same part. We're recording Brave, uh, uh, Brave Bell 3, which becomes BTO 1. It never gets on there. And just as we're about to record BTO 2, and we're getting a lot of airplay on BTO 1, and that's the day you didn't put out singles. You just put out album cuts. You want to be like Zeppelin or yes, and just have really long cuts because FM radio is playing four and five minute songs. I'm driving to the gig one night. I'm driving over the bridge to go to North Vancouver. A DJ comes on the air and he says, hi, this is Daryl B on CFUN radio and we're taking care of business. And I go, wow, 
What a song title. That says so much. Those, that, those words. And I get to the gig, and I've already pitched White Collar Worker to the band successively for two years, and they passed on it. We get to the gig that night, and now this is a Saturday night. We've been playing since Monday, so we're doing six nights a week, five 50-minute sets a night, and we get to Saturday night, the last set, and Fred Turner says, I can't sing anymore. you got to sing the last set. So he's telling me he's lost his voice. He can't sing anymore, and I've got to sing the last set. I was not really a singer. I sang the high part in no time. I would answer Burton in, 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 um, in No Sugar Tonight. I gang sang on a lot of the other BTO songs. And suddenly I've got to sing the last song, the last set. And the club owner's going, you got to do some rockin' songs. you got to get them up dancing because in a rock and roll club, they're selling beer. They turn up the heat. They give you free pretzels and popcorn. They're salty. You get thirsty. You buy more beer. I can't get them up singing. I do Bob Dylan. She belongs to me because Bob Dylan's not a great singer and neither am I. So I do that song. Nobody's dancing. Carlos Santana had a song called Oye Como. I know no Spanish. My mother's Ukrainian. I'm going up and I say, okay, I'm going to do Oye Como Va. And the band goes, well, you don't know it. And I say, just follow me. So I do Oye Como Va. Everyone's up dancing because it's a big radio hit at the time. I don't know any Spanish and I'm singing Oye Como Va pierogies. Everybody's laughing. And the next line is Gino Bumoza. I'm doing it phonetically. Holopchi, which is Ukrainian food. And everybody who's there in, in, in Vancouver is like me. They're like Ukrainians. They know what a pierogi is or kanish or whatever. And so they're laughing and we're having a great time. And, and they're all up dancing. The club owner's giving me the OK sign and he's giving me the spinning sign, which they do on TV, which means keep it rolling. It's good. And he's giving me the circle sign with his finger. Keep it going. And I'm wondering, well, the song's going to end soon. I run out of Carlos's great licks. What can I do? And a light bulb comes on the other side of my brain because the other one side of my brain is playing Oye Como Va. The light bulb comes on and goes, this is your big chance for white collar worker. The band are your hostage. They cannot say no. So why don't you take what Daryl B just said on the radio, taking care of business, and get rid of your white collar worker thing and slam the two together and it'll work. It'll work. And it's like an angel is telling me, play this riff and you'll write American Woman. Put these two bits of the song together. You'll be writing a, a, an anthem of your own. Do this right now. So I finish Oye Como Va, which goes, dun, 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 hey. And we all yell the hey. And I turn around and say, follow me three chords. So my first white collar worker had maybe 12 chords. It was very, very jazzy. It was like, you know, like a Sting song or a Paul Simon song and full of jazz chords. And so all I, I can't tell the band the chords. So I say, and I go back to Louie Louie, right? Do, three, do these three chords over and over. I start, and I have to change my melody a little bit. I have to bend the notes because I'm only doing three chords. And so I bend my notes a little, and I sing my lyrics to White Collar Worker. And when it gets to the hook, I don't sing White Collar Worker. I, it's smoothly. I just sing Taking Care of Business. And it fits. And I sing it four times. And I look at the band, and when it comes around again, they sing it with me, and I answer them every day, Taking Care of Business, every way, Taking Care of Business. It's all mine taking care of business and working over time. And I go, oh my God, thank you. Thank you, angels <laughs> of song who sent me this thing. <laughs> and we do the song for a half an hour and everyone's up dancing. And every time we stop, they sing taking care of business. And they sense this electricity in the air similar to Reading American Woman like almost 10 years before that or eight years before that. And um, we keep doing the song. My brother keeps the kick drum going. We go to record the song down in Seattle because all the Vancouver studios are full. And there's a brand new studio in Seattle. 
started by Lester B. Smith, who owned six radio stations, and Danny Kaye, the actor. So it's called Kay Smith Studios. We go down there for the opening. Danny Kaye's there. He's a proud kid. His mother makes all Jewish conditions for everybody for the opening. We're in Studio A. Steve Miller's in Studio B doing y, um, uh, Fly Like an Eagle album. And War is in Studio C doing their Why Can't We Be Friends album. So there's three bands on the verge of breaking real big there in the studios. And I record Taking Care of Business. And there's a knock at the door of the studio. And I open the door and there's a guy standing there in an army fatigue uh, outfit from head to toe and an army hat on. A big frizzy black beard and frizzy black hair, and he's holding three pizzas. We've already recorded the song. And he says, you guys order the pizza. And I said, no, we're going home. We've been here since 10 in the morning. It's now 1 in the morning. We've almost been there like 24 hours. We're going home to sleep. Try down, tried Studio B, asked for Steve, and Studio C, asked for Jerry. They probably ordered the pizza. So he comes back a few minutes later. We're putting on our jackets. We're about to leave. And he says, uh, the pizza's gone, and I'm a piano player. I really don't deliver pizza all the time just at the end of the month when I can't pay my rent. And I've been listening to the song, Taking Care of Business, through the door. It sounds great. Can I play piano on it? And I say, what? We're not a piano band. And I know little Richard and Elton John and Dr. John. I could get them to play piano. He said, yeah, but they're not here. I'm here right now. Can you give me a break? Just give me a shot. And I figure, who am I not to give a guy a shot? So I say, okay. We throw a mic in the piano. The piano's not even tuned because you usually have a piano tuner when you're recording with a piano. We're not recording with a piano. So we throw a mic in the piano, it's out of tune, covered with a blank. I say to the guy, you have one take, because we're going home. I don't even pay attention to it. The engineer pushes record. He records the guy, say, thanks very much. We're going home to sleep. We're going to listen to it the next day. I think I'm going to erase it the next day. Charlie Fatch flies in, the same guy who discovered he's seen nothing yet. Let me hear the album. I say, you're here a day early. You're supposed to come tomorrow. He said, no, I'm, I'm on my way to L.A. to play the album. We're very excited to get your new album. And... Um, so I say to the engineer, okay, when you play Taking Care of Business, do not play the piano track. We hadn't even heard it back. But halfway through the song, he pushes up the volume on the piano. In comes the piano, and Charlie again jumps out of his seat and goes, what is that? You guys with a piano? And I go, well, yeah. <laughs> Let me hear the whole thing, because he only heard the back half of the song. So we back it up, we play him the whole song, and he goes, that's amazing. You, This will get you Elton John real estate. And I say, what does that mean? He said, Elton John owns AM radio and FM radio. The guy is everywhere because of his piano. All you other guys are guitar, bass, and drums. You and ZZ Top and the Doobie Brothers and Peter Frampton, you're all guitars, bass, and drums. Elton owns AM and FM. You having a piano, you're going to get Elton John real estate. Put it on the album. I said, well, okay, we'll leave the piano on. He says, who's playing the piano? I say, I don't know, a pizza delivery guy. He says, you're kidding. I said, no, a guy delivered pizza here. He has to play the piano. I have no idea who he was. He said, well, we got to find this guy. Is he in the union? I said, I, I don't know. He delivered pizza. So he's saying, uh, well, find out. So I go down the hall. I knock on the door. Steve Miller, hey, Steve, where'd you get the pizza from? He goes, we didn't get pizza. Try war. So I go down. As it turns out, somebody got the pizza, but the studio has been cleaned up. Nobody knows where the pizza came from. So I go to the front desk to the woman who's you know the receptionist and say okay here's the yellow pages when you start at antonio's i'll go halfway through and start at mario's <laughs> we'll phone every italian place or pizza place within like three blocks of the studio and we have to i have to find this guy who looks kind of like fidel castro he's wearing an army suit with a big black frizzy beard so we're phoning up restaurants saying hi do you have a pizza delivery guy that looks like fidel castro so if you've ever seen the simpsons 
when they phone Moe's bar, and they say, you know, Bart will phone Moe's bar and say, hi, can I speak to Seymour Hare? And the guy will go slam me, slam the phone down because you're asking for a joke name. So we're phoning these places and we're asking for a guy that looks like Fidel Castro. And we're getting the, thing, the phone slammed down. Finally, I get lucky on the third phone call. And they say, yeah, you mean, the, you mean the piano player guy? Yeah, he looks like Fidel. He's got a big frizzy beard. And he always wears an army sh- jacket and stuff. I said, can you tell me his name? They said, no, we don't give employees names over the phone. I said, but we found the guy. When does he start work? Six o'clock. Send him down. We need to meet the guy. Do you want a pizza? Yeah, we don't care. Just send the guy down. So he comes down. His name was Norman Durkee. That's the piano and taking care of business. And when he was doing the track, I said to him, look, I don't know what I want. So play a bit of Elton John, play a bit of Dr. John, play a bit of Little Richard. And that when you listen to the piano and taking care of business, the first verse is very Dr. John, very New Orleans. Then the second verse is Elton John with more shots like honky, honky cat and things. And then the Little Richard stuff comes in. And that's the piano that's on there. And that guy, Norman Durkee, went on to be Bette Midler's musical director on one of her North American tours. And when I toured the world with Ringo Starr All-Star Band, we ended in 95 at uh, in in hollywood and the pianist for the la philharmonic orchestra was the same guy norman durkey the pizza guy is a great story and this has been the stuff of urban legend for years and years but there's another one which needs a, a little bit of corroboration here did elvis actually record a version and if so did you ever hear it well here's the thing um, I told you I played violin, and then I saw Elvis on TV, and that made me switch to guitar, because I was said, that's called Elvis, that's called the guitar, and that's called rock and roll, and I said I want to do that. I was sick of playing Royal Conservatory violin, of playing all the notes on the page, ending a certain way, and I liked the wildness of rock and roll. Um, many years after that, I saw an HBO special with Priscilla Presley, with all clips of Elvis, and they asked her about the song. And she said, well, we were driving to the L.A. airport to fly back to Memphis, and Elvis heard a song on the radio called Taking Care of Business by a Canadian band. She didn't name us, but obviously it was us. And he said, that's what I want as my motto, Taking Care of Business. We'll be the TCB band, Lightning Bolt. When I say I want something, TCB, I mean right away, Take Care of Business. And that became his logo. It's on his tombstone, which is amazing. And then he was playing Vegas, and I met with somebody in his band. And his, his bass player, Jerry, became Carl Wilson's manager. And I toured with the Beach Boys for a lot and wrote a lot of songs with Carl Wilson for their Keep the Summer Alive album. And he told me that somewhere in one of the rehearsals, Elvis recorded, excuse me, Elvis recorded Taking Care of Business. So it's somewhere in the archives of him live with James Burden on guitar, who is one of my idols because he backed Rick Nelson and all those great guitar solos. And so it's there in the Elvis archives. And now they're digging through the Elvis archives. I know they're going to be doing an Elvis... um, what's called Avatar. They're doing, a, they're doing an ABBA Avatar performance, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're yeah. creating an Elvis yeah, yeah, one, yeah. and they're probably going to do a Led Zeppelin one with a with uh, John Bonham. I mean, this is the great new thing about the new technology. We're going to see these guys again. We're going to see Elvis again.
the legendary Randy Bachman of Bachman Turner Overdrive. Now, you can actually listen to a very, very in-depth conversation that we had with him over two shows. Actually, it ran for about um, 90 to 100 minutes or so. It's a really good conversation for the early days with the guests who right through to the current day, really. And you can access that via the, the website at www.theclassicrockpodcast.com. Now, there is nearly always, isn't there, a Led Zeppelin anniversary, if you care to look for it, and to celebrate in 1973. It's now 50 years of Houses of the Holy. Some clearly didn't understand the philosophy as a band, did they? Including a guy called Gordon Fletcher over at Rolling Stone, who said, one of the most dull, dullest and confusing albums I've heard this year. If you actually search around, you'll find that appears in a feature called the Top 15 Bullshit Album Reviews that Rolling Stone had the balls to publish. Hmm. Some buggers don't like it, but I do. And so do a few thousand others, counter Jimmy Page. We, of course, can bask in that uh, reflective glory of hindsight and just listen now and wonder where all the negativity came from. I think, actually, as we, we get older, we take more time to listen and to digest what is coming out of those speakers. And, of course, as we do, we come to the conclusion that amazement exists in every track.
1973 was the year that Led Zeppelin set a record for the highest attendance at a gig. 56,800 people turned up at Tampa Stadium in Tampa, Florida to watch them. But the best story I like about this album, uh, the album cover, of course, has been lauded many, many times over the years. But it wasn't the first album cover that dropped on the desk of Zeppelin's offices. No, the first came from Storm Thorgerson, and it it was a green tennis court, an electric green tennis court, with a racket on it. Now, they thought uh, that that was Storm, just trying to be a little bit funny, insinuating the music was a racket. So he was promptly fired. Good thing too, because what came afterwards, far superior. Can you imagine now looking back at an album cover which existed, which was a green tennis court and a racket? Doesn't bear thinking about it really, does it? Time for a couple more before we have to conclude with this edition. And I don't think you can mention 1973 without giving a nod towards Easy Top. Praise hombres, of course. It was the album that wrote them, of course, into the mainstream in the US. And it is home, of course, to Lagrange. A story which, of course, has been told a million times and needs no further expansion. But what you might not know is that this is the song that Billy Gibbons sings in the shower.
have to admit I'm having issues at the moment. Getting that image of Billy Gibbons standing in a shower singing that. I wonder if he takes off his sunglasses and his hat. But enough of that, because we have to go now. And before we do go, time for a bit of Black Sabbath, I think. So I hope you've enjoyed this trip back to 1973. We couldn't get everything in, of course. Uh, But Black Sabbath released Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, an extraordinarily gripping affair, according to Rolling Stone. Well, they got that one right, didn't they? A fifth platinum-selling album in a row. Uh, They ended up recording this at Clearwell Castle, uh, which Led Zeppelin, Whitesnake, Mott the Hoople, many, many, many bands have used over the years. And if you look at some of the stories in Tony Iommi and Ozzy's biographies, there are many tales of ghostly goings-on and shenanigans in the night. To this day, Tony and Ozzy will tell you that they followed a ghostly figure wearing a cloak who simply vanished into thin air. And I know what you're thinking, exactly the same as what I'm thinking at this particular time. (laughs) But sitting back edgily and reminiscing about this year, you realise just how lucky we were to have been around to experience it, survived it, and now to relive some of the momentous musical moments in that history. And so to conclude then, after we say a thank you to Randy Backman and Mark Farner, of course, for uh, joining in. And to just remind you, in a couple of weeks, we'll be back again with uh, Robbie McCauley and Ronnie Romero, special guesting on the show. So a lot to talk about there. But to play us out this month, Black Sabbath from Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And this is not Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, but this is Spiral Architecture.
Thank you.